ahead now and take out your Bibles. Let's open them up to the book of Romans in chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Just to remind you a little bit about how big the task is of getting the Word of God to more people. Uh, Jim mentioned the Gideon's goal of being able to distribute 120 million Bibles by the year 2020 uh, in that year. And 120 million seems like a lot of Bibles, but there's 7 billion people in this world. And uh, you may remember when uh, Drew Moss was here with, uh, with Wycliffe Translators, we, we took the list of all the people groups who did not yet have a Bible even in their language. And that list went from here all the way to the, the back of the sanctuary, each one of those people groups uh, representing thousands and thousands, often hundreds of thousands or even millions of people. So this is a huge task. And uh, we ought to care passionately about getting the Word of God to as many people as possible. And so I hope that is your heartbeat because I'm able to look at you and say, take out your Bibles and turn to Romans 6. And not everybody can do that. So, Romans 6, and uh, let's begin reading in verse 1. And uh, we're going to read together verses 1 through 4. Says the Word of God, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, Last week, we began unpacking these four verses. There were seven points that I wanted to make in all. Seven points. We hit five of them last week. And we're going to do the last two this morning. Here are the five points from last week, just to remind you. Number one, Christians have died to sin. That's his number one point. It's the main point of these four verses. Christians have died to sin. Verse two, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul's assumption in this passage is that Christians have died to sin. And if you've died to sin, you can't be living in it. Number two, a Christian's death to sin is an objective reality. It is an objective reality. That is, Paul doesn't command us here to to be dead to sin. He doesn't command us here to die to sin. Instead, he says, this is who you are. If you are a Christian, you are dead to sin. This is what repentance and faith include. It's a change of allegiance. It's a change of masters. I no longer serve sin. I serve Christ. A Christian by definition is someone who has died to sin. It's who we are. It's an objective reality. Number three, we saw that being dead to sin 
means that there is hostility between us and sin. Being dead to sin means that there is hostility between us and sin. And we know that because that's what it meant when we were dead to God. Before we were saved, we were dead to God. There was hostility between me and God. We were enemies of God. We refused to do His will. And Paul says in verse 11 that we must now consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That same hostility that we used to have towards God has changed directions. And it's now directed towards sin. We are enemies of sin. We actively oppose sin. We seek to kill sin in our lives. We hate sin because sin is opposed to the God whom we now love. You don't say, I hate eating squash, and then get a double helping of squash. If you are actively seeking to eat squash at every opportunity, you do not hate squash. Say it all you will. The truth is you like it. You may even love it. Do you refuse to even touch it when it's put on the plate in front of you? If you haven't eaten in 24 hours and you still refuse to eat it, you probably hate squash. Paul's point here is that Christians really do hate sin and they actively work to rid themselves of it. If you say, I'm a Christian, but you live in sin, you don't hate sin. And therefore, you're not a Christian. Christians, by definition, are dead to sin. They don't go on indulging in it. The two are diametrically opposed to each other, following Christ and living in sin. Number four. Number four. We saw that being dead to sin means that we refuse to do the will of sin. Being dead to sin means that we refuse to do the will of sin. That's what it meant when we were dead to God. God said, here is my will for you. We said, no thanks. I have my own will for me. But now that we're alive to God and dead to sin, it's changed course. Now we say to sin, I don't want your will for me. I now live to do God's will. And so Christians are learning self-control. Christians are learning self-denial. Christians are learning to say no to wicked impulses when they come into our hearts. But how did we get this way? What brought about this Copernican revolution in our souls? What, what, what revolutionized us? What changed us? Well, this was point number five. Christians are dead to sin because of our union to Jesus Christ. Christians are dead to sin because of our union to Jesus Christ. It's because of Him. It's because of His saving work that this great miracle has happened in our lives. It is because we are united to Him that the benefits of His death, burial, and resurrection come to us and change us. Last week, we took a few minutes to look at how each one of those affects us. We're united to Christ in His death. Look at verse 3. Verse 3, united to Christ in His death. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? And we saw last week that there's this 
federal or legal union between us and Christ so that when He went to the cross, He went as our representative if we're Christians. And He took the condemnation we deserved, destroying sin's ability to condemn you. He set you free from the penalty of sin. And then there's not only this legal representative, this legal union, this federal union between you and Christ, but now if you believe, there's this spiritual union between you and Christ where the very Spirit of Christ now dwells in your soul and He is working to remove from you the very presence of sin in your life. And that day when the Spirit first came upon you and changed your heart, He opened your eyes to the glory of Christ. He opened your eyes to see sin for the vile thing it is and He destroyed sin's power over you because you're no longer willing to just bend the knee to whatever sin says. You've tasted something better. You've found a better Lord. And so your union with Christ in His death has freed you from the power of sin and the penalty of sin. We're united to Christ in His burial. Verse 4. See it? Verse 4. United to Christ in His burial. We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death. And the idea is that in baptism we present this picture of burial Jesus was buried. We are buried. And burial was the evidence that Jesus really died. It was the evidence that His work on the cross was finished. In the same way, our baptism, our burial, is a defining moment that says we've reached a turning point in our lives. We're not the same people we used to be. The old man is dead. My old life is over. We were once married to sin. He was a rotten husband. But that marriage was only till death do we part. And in Jesus Christ, we've died to sin. And we have a better husband now. And all of this is pointing to the fact that we were united to Christ in His resurrection. Look at verse 4, second half of the verse. Second half of verse 4, united to Christ in His resurrection, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, that we too might walk in newness of life. Christ has taken us out of the world of bondage to sin, and He's brought us into a better place, a better kingdom, a better way of living. Bye-bye wickedness. Hello, holiness. Bye-bye living like the devil. Hello, Christ-likeness. It's kind of like this. Imagine you have lived your entire life trapped in a musty, dank cave. It's the only place you've ever known, this cave. It's full of disgusting things. But you've lived your whole life here and it's familiar to you. But now, by God's grace, you've begun to see your home for what it really is. It's rank. More than that, your eyes have been granted to catch a glimpse of another world outside of your cave. A world full of beauty. A world full of glory. You look outside your cave and there's this, this field full of flowers. There's bright sunshine and blue skies. And you see these things and your heart longs for them. 
the cave has lost all of its appeal in your heart. You see, Christ has opened your eyes to see Him. And He's the opposite of everything we had ever known before Him. He, was, he is pure. We've lived our lives in impurity. He is sacrificial. We've been self-centered and self-obsessed. He's patient and loving and merciful. We've been arrogant and demanding. And suddenly, we no longer like the way we've been living. Our heart yearns for holiness. Our heart yearns for what we see in our Savior. We long to be free of this cave. We long to be free of the sin that clings so closely to us. Well, guess what? That's what happens in salvation. That's what this passage is telling you. Jesus has purchased you for Himself, Christian, and He has brought you outside the cave. He now tells you, you can pursue holiness with all your might. Go run through the field. Gorge yourself on patience and kindness and wisdom. Throw yourself into the enjoyment of truth. Don't go back to the cave. How ludicrous for these people to suggest in verse 1 that Christians should go on sinning. Why would we run back to the cave when we've finally been brought out of it? Jesus has set you free from bondage to sin. Why would you put the chains back on? Throw off selfishness. Throw off self-centeredness and bitterness and unforgiveness. Christ gives you newness of life. Live in it. Embrace who you are. A person being made holy by the grace of God through the Spirit of God on the basis of the work and the power of the Son of God. Rope through the fields of growing holiness. Follow Jesus wherever He leads you. And as you do, look forward to that day when you will round a corner and you will see a paradise like you've never seen before. Sum up the message of this passage. Jesus Christ, by His atoning work, has made you as a Christian dead to sin so that you can now live life unto God. We hate sin. We love God. That's what it means to be a Christian. But there are two more points to go. And so here are the two points I want us to see this morning. Paul uses this language of baptism. Baptism. And he seems to be saying that our union to Christ has come about through baptism. Verse 3, we were baptized into Christ Jesus. We were baptized into His death. Verse 4, we were buried therefore with Him by baptism. So what is meant by those words? Well, here's point number 6. Christians are united to Christ through the baptism of the Spirit. Christians are united to Christ through the baptism of the Spirit. Now, I agree that Paul is talking in this passage about the ordinance of baptism. But Paul is not thinking only 
of the ordinance of baptism. He is thinking particularly about the spiritual reality behind the ordinance of baptism. We're going to talk about water baptism in a moment. But water baptism is a picture of spirit baptism. We are not united to Jesus Christ by water. There is nothing magical in the waters of a baptistry that unites you to Jesus Christ and to all of the benefits that come through Him. It is the baptism of the Spirit that unites us to Jesus. Now, I need to be very careful because as best as I can understand, this phrase, the baptism of the Spirit, is used in at least a couple of different ways in the New Testament. That word baptism, in the Greek, baptizo, literally means to immerse. To immerse. And therefore, baptism in the Spirit means that we are immersed in the Spirit. A baptism in the Spirit means that the Spirit comes upon you, comes down upon you in a, in a mighty way. And Pentecost was a kind of Spirit baptism. And we know that because it's called that in several verses. The Spirit came down upon the church, bringing new power and missionary zeal. But there seems to be another kind of spirit baptism in view in 1 Corinthians 12. And I think that's what Paul has in mind here. So look with me at 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. Paul really wanting to hit hard on the theme of unity. We are one in the body of Christ. And here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. Now I want you to notice several things about the baptism in the Spirit in this verse. By the way, have you ever wondered about this? What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Well, first, when we receive this baptism, it's clear that we are brought into the body of Christ. There's a connection between being baptized in the Spirit and being brought into the body of Christ. In one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Second, every Christian, whether Jew or Gentile, has received this baptism. If you're in this room, according to Paul, you've experienced the baptism of the Spirit if you're a Christian. Right? Because Paul's point in this verse is unity. That whether you are Jew or Gentile, whether you are slave or free, if you're a Christian, this is something that unites us all. We've all experienced this baptism of the Spirit. And third, Paul says that through the Spirit baptism, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. That is, we find our spiritual strength 
through the Spirit of Christ and having our needs met by the Spirit of Christ. Drinking of the Spirit is a reference to faith. It's a reference to looking to Christ, casting our cares upon Him and having Him meet our needs through the Spirit in our souls. And so it is clear to me, I hope it's clear to you in this verse, that the baptism of the Spirit mentioned here is the Spirit coming upon a person changing that person's heart and bringing that person to faith in Jesus Christ. This is how we become a part of the body of Christ. This is something that every Christian has in common. If you're a Christian, the Spirit did it. The Spirit made that happen. So, back in Romans 6, back with me to Romans 6, we need to understand that it is this baptism that matters most. And my question for you is this. Have you experienced this baptism? Has this happened to you? Was there a day when the Spirit of God came upon you in power and changed your heart and brought you to faith in Christ? That was the day when the benefits of Christ's life, death, and resurrection were given to you. That was the day when you were spiritually united to Jesus Christ. That was the day you became dead to sin and alive to God. It was through the baptism of the Spirit. Can't help but think of Augustine. He had become convinced of the truth of Christianity, but he had his mistress. He had this mistress. He was living in sexual immorality and he loved this sin. And so even though he had become mentally in his brain convinced of the truth of Christianity, his heart was still far from Christ. Sin reigned over him. He continued to bow to the will of sin. He knew all the right things, but he was dead to God. He was alive to sin. And he wouldn't give up his mistress. Come to that moment where he's in the friend's garden. We've talked about this before, so I won't share all the details again. It's really amazing how God worked to bring this about. But he, Augustine is in the, the garden of a friend. He picks up a copy of the book of Romans. And his eyes just fall on Romans 13, verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And immediately the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, changed Augustine's heart. And he began to love God more than his sin. In a moment, his eyes were opened to the heinousness of the sin that he had been living in and to the glory of Christ. And he chose to follow Christ. And in a prayer to Christ, Augustine said about that moment, see if this resonates with what you experienced. See if this sounds familiar. This is how Augustine talked about that moment in a prayer. He said to Christ, how sweet did it become to me to be free of the sweets of folly. Things that I once feared to lose, it was now a joy to put away. 
Things that I once feared to lose. If I become a Christian, I have to give this up. If I become a Christian, I have to stop doing this. If I have to become a Christian, I I can't have these things. Things that I once feared to lose, it became a joy to put away. You, Jesus, cast them forth from me. You, the true and highest sweetness. You cast them forth. And in their place, you entered in. Sweeter than every pleasure. Brighter than every light. Higher than every honor. Now my mind was free from the gnawing cares of favor-seeking. Striving for gain. Wallowing in the mire and of scratching lusts, itchy, sore. I spoke like a child to you. My light, my wealth, my salvation, my Lord God. You ever experienced such a moment? Has the Spirit come upon you in such a way that you died to sins? You used to love them, now you love being free of them. You have entered into newness of life, living in the love of God. Is that you? And if not, would you fall on your knees and pray like crazy for God to cause that to happen to you? So Christians are united to Christ through the baptism of the Spirit. And that brings us to the last point from these verses. Number seven, a Christian's union to Christ is signified in water baptism. A Christian's union to Christ is signified, sign, signified in water baptism. Salvation happens in the heart. Dying to sin, being made alive to God, that is the work of the Spirit in the heart. But when this work happens in the heart, there are external results. If a person has been born again, he cannot keep that a secret. Be truly saved by the Lord Jesus Christ is something that makes us want to sing, something that makes us want to shout. Not only are we to show what has happened to us with our words and our deeds before others, but we are specifically commanded to participate in the ordinance of water baptism. In water baptism, we profess outwardly what has happened to us inwardly. Baptism was a fairly common practice in the first century seems so strange to us, this ceremony, but it was, it was a very common practice in the first century. There were many teachers who would have their followers come and be baptized in their name in a river. When you were baptized in the name of a teacher, you were basically declaring to others, I now identify myself with that teacher. I identify myself with the teachings of that teacher. I, I follow the ways and the teachings of that teacher. Jesus commanded us to be baptized in the name of the triune God. We're to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And when we're baptized, we're declaring that our allegiance now belongs no longer to self and sin, but to the triune God. But we're doing more than that. We are declaring our belief in baptism that Christ's death 
has brought death to our old selves. And so we go under the water. This is why we believe that immersion, as good Baptists, we believe that immersion and not sprinkling is the best mode for baptism. Now this isn't, I don't want to elevate how important this is. I I believe there are times when sprinkling may be necessary. If somebody's afraid of water, we shouldn't allow that to keep them from being baptized. But I do think mode is important, and and we believe that immersion is best because it it shows literally death. The death of Christ has brought about a death to me. I am dying to who I used to be. I mentioned earlier that that Greek word, baptize, it literally means to immerse. Listen to what Leon Morris says about this word, baptizo, baptism. This word was used, for example of people being drowned, of ships being sunk. Josephus used it metaphorically of crowds who flooded into Jerusalem and wrecked the city. It is quite in keeping with this that Jesus referred to his own death as a baptism. When it is applied to Christian initiation, we ought not to think in terms of gentleness and inspiration. Baptism means death. Death to a whole way of life. Do you see how baptism is a picture of what Christ has done? The pastor is an under-shepherd representing the chief shepherd. The water represents the Spirit. Jesus immersed us in the Spirit, changed our hearts, made us dead. Pastor puts us into the water, puts us into the the picture of the Spirit, symbolizing our death that has come about by the work of the Spirit, and and then He brings us up to newness of life. There's that picture of burial, proving we've died. It's not like that movie, The Princess Bride. You'll see that movie, The Princess Bride. The main character's name is Wesley. and At one point in the movie, he's... He's dead. And you start to say, oh no, what's going to happen? He's dead. And then you find out, well, he's not really dead. He's, he's mostly dead. Right? That's the way some people want to live the Christian life. Sure, I'm dead to sin. Well, mostly dead. Right? Kind of like being baptized with your fingers crossed. Right? No, baptism symbolizes we're dead to sin. It no longer has power over us. We can be holy. We can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. Pastor brings the person back up out of the water. And it's like Jesus rising from the dead. And because Jesus rose, He's alive to send the Spirit into sinners' hearts and to rise us from the dead. And that's what we're showing. We're showing, I'm alive now. I used to think I was alive, but I was dead. Now I'm I'm really alive. Praise be to God. I am truly alive. Once was lost, now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. I once lived in the cave of worldly wickedness and thought that was life. Now I've seen a whole new world. Are you living in the whole new world? Are you living in the sunshine of the glory of God? 
Are you living in the reality of He loves me? I can't believe it. But He loves me. And He's working everything for my good. That's what we're showing in baptism. Three points of application. We'll do this very quickly. Three points of application. Number one, those who have never been united to Christ should look to Christ in faith. Turn from your sins. If this is not you, turn from your sins and trust Jesus. Follow Him. Maybe you say, Justin, I, I want to follow Him, but I'm like Augustine was. I, I just love my sin so much. Well then, dear friend, get on your knees and pray that God would change your heart and open your eyes to see sin for the sick thing it is. Something that wants to kill you. And pray that God would show you the beauty of Christ. Number two, once a person has turned from sin and begun to follow Christ, that person should show it through baptism. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.38 it's only after a person turns from sin, repents, then he is forgiven. And it's only after repentance that the Spirit actually comes and makes your heart His home. And the way you outwardly profess that you've died to your old self and that the Spirit is living within you and you've come to new life is through baptism. Now let me be clear. Baptism is not the only way we profess our faith. You know that, don't you? Growing up at the, the end of the service, I would often hear preachers pleading with people to come down the aisle. And they would often quote Matthew 10, 32, 33, Everyone who acknowledges Me before men, I will also acknowledge before My Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies Me before men, I will also deny before My Father who is in heaven. You come down this aisle. Don't deny your Savior. It's the way that was preached when I was younger. It's not at all what Jesus is talking about in that passage. Jesus was talking about acknowledging Him in the way we live on Monday and on Tuesday and on Wednesday and on Thursday and on Friday and on Saturday and on Sunday afternoon and on Sunday morning and Sunday evening. Titus 1.16, Paul described these men causing trouble on the, this island of Crete. And he said, they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. In a very real sense, the greatest profession of faith we have is what you do every day. The way you live before others. Baptism is not the only way we profess Christ, but it is important. And it and the Lord's Supper are the two ceremonial ways we profess Christ. Baptism once, the Lord's Supper regularly. So we declare before God our own souls and everybody else around, I am trusting in the broken body of Christ and His shed blood. That is all my hope. That is all my salvation. So if you have not been baptized and you're following Jesus Christ, you need to do that. It's a matter of obedience. It's very important. It's a great act of worship. Number three, finally, for those of us who are Christians and we have been baptized, here's the application. It's the same as last week. 
Don't play nice with sin. Don't make peace with sin. Don't make excuses for sin. Well, I've been like this for 70 years. I'm not going to change now. Jesus died so that sin would no longer have power over you. Jesus died. Think about the cross. He died that sin would no longer have power over you. Was His death a failure? Did His death not work? It did work. And there should be evidence in your life or else you are blaspheming the Gospel. The Spirit right now is working within you, Christian, to rid you of sin, to destroy sin in your life. Walk with the Spirit. Cooperate with the Spirit. Don't oppose what the Spirit is doing. Join the Spirit in this work. It begins and ends, really, by living every day in the reality of Jesus' love for you. Live in that love. Live in gratitude. Live in humility. Live in amazement. Dive into God's Word so that you can be constantly refreshed in that love. Dive into prayer so that you can cast yourself upon Him. There needs to be communication happening so that this love will grow. Just like in a marriage. Learn from the spiritual giftedness of those around you. You see someone who excels at kindness? Be like them. Learn from them. See someone who excels in wisdom? Learn from them. Get around them. Spend time from them. Take advantage of every means of grace. And in the joy that Jesus provides, make war against every sin in your life. And may God help us. Amen? Let's pray. Just call us all to take a few moments and to pray quietly. Unbelievers, run to Christ. Those of you who are believers and you're refusing to be baptized, you need to repent of that and resolve right now to get that taken care of.